Well, grab your Bible while you're settling into your seat and open to Philippians chapter 1. And by the way, uh, grandparents and everyone, what a blessing to see the next generations continuing on in Christ, isn't it? Beautiful thing. I'll tell you, God is just blessing us with so many new babies. Just very, very cool. Well, Philippians chapter 1. The text we are entering today, um, this is grammatically speaking an incredibly complex text. In fact, uh, Paul's use of the Greek language in this text is uh, really nothing short than uh, sheer literary intellect. Um, It's the kind of text to where if you're understanding the original language, you just sit back and you go, oh my word, this guy is crazy smart. Uh, It's just the reality. I mean, it's like this guy is total Ivy League law professor, grammatical tactician, a language mastery on a canvas, nothing short of raw intellect. It's just the fact of it. And you may respond to that and go, yeah, but Doug, well, duh. I mean, this is inspired words. These are, these are God's words penned down by human authors for us. And so these are God's words. And it's like, yeah, in the inspiration of Scripture, absolutely the case. God breathed the words. But in the reality of understanding that, the fact is, is that we also see the personality of the human authors coming through in this. And I'm just going to tell you, Paul is not an uneducated two-toothed hillbilly who is uh, just bored in jail trying to figure something out to write and coming up with some like big desert nomad story here. This guy is stunning smart. In fact, write just a note, right? Turn over Ephesians chapter 1, just a couple pages to the left. See chapter 1 there? Uh, Verses 1 through 23. In the Greek, uh, the first two verses are one sentence. Then verses 3 through 14, do you see that? Uh, Paul wrote that in one sentence, okay? For then from verses four, or 15 to the end of the chapter, that's the second sentence. Now you may go, well, yeah, he's like the master of semicolons. Um, well, not quite that way. Uh, let me put it this way. The New King James Version, the English Standard Version, I use the English Standard Version. In those versions, we have six sentences for what are Paul's two sentences, In the New American Standard Version, it has uh, uh, nine sentences. In the New International Version, if you have that, which really the New International Version is actually more how we think in in pieces. It's more a little bit more how we actually talk in some pieces. In it, it takes uh, 13 sentences. The point I just bring out is is, uh, Paul's intellect has to be cut up into like bite-sized McNuggets for us to be able to process it. And I'm just bringing this because I'm actually going to make a point number, sermon point number one before we even get to the text. And it's this. The Bible is for thinking people. The Bible is for thinking people. I just want to clarify out, uh, this is one of them. Christianity is not some intellectually light, some touchy-feely, blind faith, crutch-living, non-thinking thing. Well, for you to understand, Christianity in the Bible is for thinking people. I'm talking real deal people who really want to think about life, purposes of life, what it's all about. The Bible is for thinking people. I'm going to bring out another point. That we here talk the text for the purpose of living the text. We talk the text to live the text. And I bring this up because it's in a complex 
text like what we're getting into the latter half of Philippians. It's in a text like this, you learn a lot about a pastor and a pastor's philosophy of teaching. And I want to take you just a moment behind the ministry curtain here, because I do think this is important and a great opportunity for me to bring this up. You may have been a part of, or you may have heard about churches or pastors who will spend like three, four, five years studying through one book of the Bible. Um, I know of some who've done that. Now, let's just say this. Five years through the book of Romans, okay? Um, And you may have heard about that. You may have been part of a church that does that. And you may be wondering, why don't I do that? I'll just say, why won't I do that? Uh, And here's why. There's a couple reasons here for this. One, I'm not saying that it's wrong to do that. I'm just saying that there's a couple things that go along with that that are some problems. I just want to note two. Number one, it tends to set a wrong example. It tends to set a wrong example. Um, As having been in business for 21 years myself, for the average person, for the average lay person, generally we come to approach the Bible when we come to approach the scriptures the way we've seen it taught. And when it's a five years in Romans kind of approach, then the normal person like us ends up beginning to think, so I'm supposed to spend five years in Matthew. Or I'm supposed to spend five years in Genesis or Revelation. Uh, also, this kind of five years in Romans approach, it's a uh, fact is you're never going to learn the whole counsel of God. You're just not going to see the breadth of Scripture in that. Also, this approach, frankly, it's just tiresome and discouraging as time goes on. It's just within us. It's like, I just want to get to something else and something more as well. So I think there's a, a wrong example. And secondly, it tends to establish a wrong standard or wrong purpose amongst a church family. What do I mean by that? It's kind of this. Well, our church, we really dig into the scriptures. We spent five years in Romans, and it ends up building a knowledge-based faith family reality. Out of that, what ends up happening is, is I could, I'm just telling you, I could spend weeks talking through the verses we're going to cover this morning, and we could talk about the details. I could talk about the debates. I could talk about the commentaries from hundreds of years ago, from recently, and do that. And, but when we end up spending all that kind of time doing this, we end up talking the text to talk the text. And along with that, what ends up coming out of that is one has a tendency to build, their, to establish and see their spiritual maturity is how much they know. In other words, if you know all the brothers and sisters of Abraham's left-handed cousins on the third side of whatever, if you can name them, you're really spiritually mature. And if you can't, then you aren't. And I just want to say this. As we start out this morning, the Bible, as we approach it, is for thinking people. And we dig into the text for the purpose of seeing how to live out the text. And so here's the deal. As we dig in today to this text, we're going to be going big picture. Okay? You ready? Let me pray. God, I just thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word this morning. You've given us your word. Lord, I would ask, may we be thinking people here as we dig into your word? Your text is just filled, this text we're in today is just filled with things we could go in rabbit trails and details and minutia all over the place. But you've written your word that we would live your word. So I just pray that we would enter it thinking 
and that we would enter it ready to live it. God, we're here, we're ready to hear, and we're ready to do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, here we go. Eight minutes in, and by the way, what's our text? Philippians chapter one, and we haven't even started reading it yet. All's cool, we're right on time, okay? Here we go. I want to start at verse 12 so that we get a bit of a running start here into our text. We've covered these in the last two weeks. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, this is Paul writing to believers in the city of Philippi. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what's happened to him, two years in jail in Caesarea, two years in jail in Rome. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's cool. And here's two ways the gospel has been advancing. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Those people who have never heard of the gospel, people who are unredeemed in Christ, they're hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, there's a second thing that's happening. Verse 14, we talked about. And most of the brothers, the believers in Christ, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's going on? Those who are redeemed in Christ, those who know Jesus Christ, or have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're growing in Christ. They're maturing in Christ. So we have people hearing the good news, and we have people doing the good news. This is an awesome thing Paul is looking at. Verse 15, now some some of the believers, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. How sad is that? We talked about this text last week. But others, the most of the brothers, are from goodwill. They do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely. How sad. But thinking to afflict me, how sick, in my imprisonment. I love this. Paul's like, what then? Like, what's with this? So we talked about last week, I love this. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Look at the last words. And in that, I rejoice. And in that, I rejoice. Let me just cover a couple things here. Verse 12. He talks about, I want you to know, brothers, know what? Know this, as we've talked about. Know this. This is the circumstances that have hit me. This is what's going on. Yet in light of all that, the gospel is advancing, and I have joy in that. Even in that, I have joy. Verses 15 through 18, continuation of the verse 12, I want you to know something. Know what? I want you to know that. That people, that even believers in Christ are biting and attacking Paul himself. And yet the gospel is advancing. And Paul says, and there's still joy in that. How awesome. Verse 18, look at the very end of it. And in that I rejoice. Understand, that's called a present active continuous verb. That means that he's presently and actively right now. He's praising God, giving rejoicing for that. And yet often, this is where we talked last week, if we're building ourselves upon circumstances are what give me joy, if it's about people is what gives me joy, I'm telling you, friends, where joy is going to be all over the place. And Paul is like, I'm in jail and I have people, even believers in Christ, people whom I love are biting after me. And I'm telling you, in all of that, I can have joy. How is it that he could do that? Here's the answer to that, right thinking. It's right theology. 
That's what I'm trying to depict here on the picture. This right here, this is right theology. The sovereign God is at work even in my circumstances and even with what's happening around me. Now today's text, we're there. Here we go. By the way, remember, the text is for thinking people, right? We talk the text to what? Live the text, okay? So here's the deal. In an incredibly complex text, we could end up talking about all the clauses and all the the, the dangling participles and all this kind of stuff out there. But I want to tell you, here's the deal. We're going to be real simple this morning because I think there's beauty and power in simplicity. So within the complexity, let's get simple. Here we go. It's going to be a little bit different than normal. What I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be putting up on the screen key phrases out of the text itself. I'm not even going to read through it. I'm going to hit the key phrases. If you want to underline key phrases to be able to see how it all connects together, then at the end, we're going to come back and we're going to read it through and see what is saying here. Verse 18, the end. Paul is rejoicing. He's rejoicing about what? In verse 19, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? Because Paul knows something. He says, for I know that. What does Paul know? Again, I come back and I go, listen, Paul's got to know something really, really amazing for him to be in jail and for people to be shooting arrows at him and for him in it going, rejoice. This has got to be knowing something really, really amazing. What is it that Paul knows about after four years in jail? Well, he knows this. Verse 19, he knows the statement that this will turn out. That's it. Let's just be real simple. I'm a simple guy. Uh, I love simple things. It's this. This is going to turn out. Uh, By the way, let me just remind you. What is the this? It's stuff like this. We just looked at. Hey, friends, for Paul, this is going to turn out. Okay, let's go home. No, because I'll tell you, when I say it that way and I say, let's go home, it kind of leaves it a bit empty, like, Give me some facts, all right? The Bible's for thinking people. Give me some meat to be able to build on the fact that this guy isn't just some happy-go-lucky, skip-through-the-tulips kind of guy, just like, everything's good, everything's good. But what is good? How is it turning out? Well, let's take a look at how it's turned out here because the text tells us. And we start here in verse 20. It looks like this. How it will turn out? Paul says, number one, I will not be at all ashamed. Regardless of what happens, Paul knows, remember, I know this, Paul knows that he will ultimately be vindicated. Now, this vindication may be referring to the fact before the Roman council and the Roman government, but I don't think that's really ultimately what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about ultimately, in the eyes of God, I'm going to be vindicated. I will not be ashamed at all in the eyes of God. That's a pretty cool thing to say. And Paul in this, because of Christ's work in his life, is in this place just like, listen, uh, this is going to turn out. I'm not going to be at all ashamed. In our culture, we have it rightly so, where being put in prison is the kind of thing that should bring some shame, should bring some punishment for acts that have been done. And yet Paul, writing from a jail cell, by the way, uh, not with a toilet in it, not with bunk beds, Uh, chained to a Roman soldier 24-7 nonstop for two years in Rome. 
not pretty pictures on the wall, no cable TV. Paul talks about it and hangs on this fact. I know that one day, though I may be in a setting to where everything looks shameful, I'm telling you, ultimately, I will not be ashamed at all in the eyes of God. Secondly, he says it looks like this. This is going to turn out like this. Christ will be honored in my body. Christ will be honored in my body. Paul saw his entirety of his life as a tool in the hand of Jesus Christ. Paul saw himself as a tool in the hand of Jesus Christ to magnify Christ. Last summer, um, there was a team who went over to Romania and my wife and I had the privilege of going over. And the summer before, we had a team who went over to Georg, Romania, and you would remember as well. And while we were on the trip, we, moved, we had a day where we were able to go kind of in between Georg and Arad and visit a gentleman there who was a, a, a carpenter, let's say a carver. He was an artist with wood. And he took us back into his shed, and uh, Paul Strakowski was completely having sinful thoughts of, of, of greed and yearning to have what this guy had. Just bringing that to the table. But he had in his shed this, it was a workplace. And he carved these unbelievable things. I mean, they were, they were amazing. And in fact, he had made for us uh, this. He'd carved this out. Now, in many ways, because uh, I, in the past, have liked working with wood, I go, okay, that's cool. There's, but I want, the coolest thing about this is this is from one piece of wood. He didn't make this and then glue it to that and then make that and glue it to the base. All of this is out of one piece of wood. And he made a couple of these for us. Now, he took a tool whatever that tool was and like, and he would use it to make this. Now, while we were there in his shed looking at all these things and his whole yard, it was just like an artist's mind all over the place. It was really cool. And when you're there, I did not hear anyone or see anyone go in the shed to his toolbox, pull the drawer out. Maybe Paul was a little bit pulling drawer out, trying to take things, but pulling the drawer out. I saw nobody over there looking at the tools and going, Tools! You are amazing. You are the coolest tools ever. You tools made that. Oh, I praise you tools. That never happened. Now, there may have been some admiration for some of the tools. It's like, man, he's got some nice tools. Or he's using that for that. None of that happened. Here's what happened. I'm sorry, but I completely forgot his name. It was to him. It was like, wow. That's amazing that you can produce that. Paul was this. Paul did not see himself as the guy who was there to receive the praise of everything that's going on. Paul was to be used in the hand of the carpenter to be able to make something of great fruitful value And all the praise doesn't go here. All the praise goes to the one who does the carpentry, right? To praise the tool 
just is ridiculous. Would we not all agree to that? Boy, yet do we struggle with that. Paul was a tool in the hand of the carpenter to produce something for the carpenter's glory. Okay? Let's go back to the text. I will not be ashamed, and Christ will be honored in my body. He can use me how he wants to. This is going to turn out. Let's talk about this. What some more? What does this look like to be uh, for Christ to use me uh, in my life? The text tells us here. Again, I'm highlighting key parts of it. We'll come back at the end. Paul tells us two ways. How many? Two ways that Christ can be honored in his body. Now, Paul's one of these guys, he beats around the bush a lot. So, so let's take a look. Verse 20, there's two ways. One, by life or by death. I was being sarcastic. I know he beats around the bush a lot. I mean, Paul just like gets right at it. There's two ways, Paul is saying. How many? And what's the first way that he can use his body to give glory to the carpenter? His life. What's the second way? His death. Let's key in on the first one here for a little bit because the text keys in on it. What does this look like in this first one? What is life about? The answer to live is Christ. Okay? To live is Christ. I just want to say this. That's focus. That's perspective. That is singular. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. Those are four powerful words. But I have a question with that. What does that look like? Seriously, what does it look like to live as Christ? Well, first, the text tells us. First, verse 22, fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. To live equals Christ, which equals fruitful labor. We'll talk on this just for a second here. The word labor. This is a word that means just what we understand it to mean. It's work, it's action, it's effort. Understand this. Living for Jesus Christ, it's work. It's labor. If you have the idea that the gospel is kind of this cute little package of this story about Jesus that died on the cross and rose from the grave and all of that kind of stuff. And if if I just like do a little prayer, do a little dance, everything's okay. And then I can just like live my life and do my thing until I see him face to face. And that's it. Uh, In love, I just want to say this. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is me, Christianity. That is, I just want it light. I just want it simple. I just want just enough of God just to be able to like have a dash of God. That's not what the Bible talks about. That's why Paul says to live is Christ. 
Now look at the next word though, because if it's, when I say that, it's like, oh my goodness, it's all labor. But what kind of labor is it? It's fruitful labor. How awesome is that? It's labor, it's work that produces. There's nothing more frustrating than no fruit labor. There's nothing more frustrating than no results labor. You put in and you put in and you put in and whether it's a while or whether it's years and you look and you go, nothing came out of that. That seems like a waste. But in this, in the text, it tells us it's fruitful labor. Healthy things grow. We right now have three evergreen trees right out in our backyard and one of them is getting a scary shade of yellow and I'm having a heart problem about it. I don't want it to go. It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to continue to grow. It's not supposed to fade away and i am sure by next sunday literally i'm sure all the needles are going to be on the ground and that booger's dead that's just sad isn't it isn't that sad don't you just want to cry it's a sad thing it's a sad thing when something that's designed to produce and to grow doesn't and the scriptures talk about how this reality of of there's Fruit, healthy things grow. One of the big statements of harvest all over. Look at this. It's fruitful labor. One of the most rewarding things in life is labor that produces fruit. New moms, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And look at it. Paul says it's fruitful labor for who? What does the text say? Fruitful labor for me. Please understand, this is, yeah, all for the glory of Christ. This is all for God. But yet in the reality of the way God has designed it as the tool, there's fruitful labor for me as well in it. You know what I'm talking about when you do ministry or working with people and you see fruit come out of that thing. It's like, I'm telling you, there's nothing better than that. The thing God used to move me out of business was having the opportunity to, if you will, produce fruit to develop products that, not in arrogance, just fact, used all over the world now in that reality of it, but yet to now be able to have through our church activity and things we were doing as lay people to see fruit being generated out of people and see the connection. This stuff, really cool, is temporary. This is eternal. I like that. In fact, my testimony is summed up this way. A love for developing medical devices turned into a love for developing people. And I just want to tell you, that's what Paul's talking about here. I'm not trying to toot my horn. I'm just saying that's my story as well. And that's what Paul is communicating out. There is nothing better than that. It's fruitful labor for Christ, but we see fruit of it. Quickly, let me just go through and say, how does that fruitful labor look like? Four things. Number one, the text, verse 24, it's more necessary on your account. In other words, it's labor, in your notes, it's labor for your account. It's labor for your sake. It's for others. It's not about me. It's about others. 
following Jesus Christ. Your life is to be about others account. Secondly, verse 25, the text tells us the labor, it's for your progress. For your progress. Progress. Same word that was used in verse 12 in chapter 1. We had talked about that a couple weeks ago. If you remember, Paul is talking about, he says, and the gospel is advancing, the gospel is progressing. It's the exact same word. And the uniqueness, the cool thing about that word is it's not a simple advancing. It's a hard advancing. It's taking work advancing. It was used to talk about an army unit that was advancing ahead, but it wasn't like out on the highway or out on the beach, just everybody's going, woo, we're advancing. It was, we're making it through being shot at. Things are happening. It's hard work. But I want to let you know, in the hard work of it all, we're advancing. And here, Paul talks about his laboring is for their advancing. And by the way, the laboring, it isn't easy. But it's fruitful labor for your progress. Third, verse 25, it's labor, it says, for your progress and your joy. Whose joy, by the way, is it this for? It's for your joy. It's for others' joy. Understand this, joy. Joy, biblically, is not their self-esteem, their personal happiness, their ease and comfort. Paul isn't concerned about trying to help them build up their stronger 401k or a, a nicer living quarters or more stuff in their driveway. Paul is talking about joy. Biblical joy is the supernatural delight in the person and purposes of God. Let me say that again. Biblical joy is the supernatural delight in the person of Christ and the purposes of Christ. Oh, by the way, that's why Paul in jail with darts being chucked at him by one of his, by his own brothers in Christ, that's why he can have joy because his joy isn't in his circumstances. His joy isn't in other people. His joy is in Jesus Christ, the person and the purposes of Christ. And therefore, whatever circumstances come my way, whatever darts get shot my way, I can rejoice in the fact that a sovereign God is working his person and his purposes. By the way, do you get wrapped up in who Christ is? Or is it just kind of like a thought? I want to tell you, we need to get wrapped up in who Christ is and what he's all about. It's for your joy. Fourth, verse 26 this, what does uh, to live in Christ look like? It looks like this. Fruitful labor means it's for your glorying in. The text tells us you to have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul's labor is for their glorying in and glorying in Christ Jesus. Here's part of what the text, when you read it, you'll see. Paul is saying that I'm looking forward to coming back. He really believes he's going to come back and see them. And at the time when he comes back and when he sees them, they're not going to glory in Paul. They're going to glory in the work of Christ that Paul is back. And they're going to go, seriously, Paul, the fact that you're back with us makes me just go, joy! Oh, my word! Jesus Christ, the Trinity is amazing! You're back! God is in control of all things and doing a work. It's for their glory. And so to live equals Christ, to live equaling Christ is fruitful labor. 
Uh, It's life labor for your account. It's for your progress in the faith. It's for your joy in the faith. It's for your glorying in Christ Jesus. And by the way, I have to say this. In none of this is Paul saying, crud, I might live. Ugh. I might live and I might labor for you. Never is there a tone of that in the text. He's jazzed about it. He's excited about this. He's proclaiming it because this is something marvelous to do. Hey, parents, on parent-child day, I just want to make this note. You are to be laboring for your child's sake. You are to be laboring for the progressing of your child's faith. You are to be laboring for the joy of your child in Christ. You are to be laboring for your child. And boy, parents, don't we know? Let's be honest. It's work. But it's also that they would glorify and glory in Christ. Hey, dads, it's Father's Day. Hey, dads, seriously, just straight up. Let's man-to-man talk here. It's this. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's just not about us. And because out of this, what we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be the kind of dads that are laboring for our family's sake to be able for their account. It's literally the word can be translated for their profit, for their gain. It's for their progress in the faith. It's for their uh, continuing joy in the faith. It's that they would glorify in Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, let me bring it all the way back to us as a church people, God's people as a faith family, as a believer to believer. So often today we have the mindset that church is the place where I get to go and I get to get. And where am I going to go so I can get more? and get more, and get more, and get more. This text is telling us, Paul's mindset about ministry, believer to believer, is this. Where can I go to be most effective for their, those people's sake? For their progress in the faith. For my brother and sister's increase in joy in the faith so that my brothers and sisters would be able to glorify more in Christ Jesus. Where can I go so that I can serve them to do that? I want to tell you, the church that's got that kind of mindset is a church that is going to rock the world. And we're growing towards that. Paul knows something. He knows this is going to turn out. Rejoice. He knows he will not be ashamed. He knows that Christ is going to be honored in his body. He knows that in life, it's going to be about fruitful labor for others, all for the glory of Christ. And then the last thing here quickly, but what if it isn't life? What if it is by death? Verse 20. What if Paul is going to die? I'll just say this. How do I as a Christ follower think about that? How do I think about death? Verse 21. For the person that is redeemed in Jesus Christ to die is gain. To die is gain. To die is to profit. Why is it a gaining endeavor? Answer 1, verse 23, because to die is to depart. No more hurt, no more pain, no more tears, no more sin, no more battle with sin, no more living in a sin-cursed world. 
That sounds pretty good to depart. Answer number two, Paul gives, verse 23, to die is to depart and to be with Christ. Booyah. Can I just say this? If that doesn't crank you up, how big is your understanding of Christ? Face to face with the Godhead forever. I don't want to leave my wife. I don't want to leave my kids. I don't want to leave my kid-in-laws. But you know what? Thank God forever face to face together. That sounds like a song. It's a cool thing. Paul is not, I just want to get out of this place so I can get and be with Christ. Paul is literally like this, friends. If God would have me stay here and to live, rejoice. That's a wonderful thing because there's more fruitful labor to be done here. I have the opportunity with my family. I have the opportunity with my church. I have the opportunity with people at work. I mean, listen, to hear this is an opportunity of eternal reality. And yet, if it's to die, (laughs) it's out of here. And it's with Christ forever. To live is Christ. And the gospel will be advanced in me. Joy in that. To live is to walk with Christ. And see the gospel advance, there's joy in that. But to die, that's gain as well. Because the gospel will be fulfilled joy in that. Let's close with this. Let's read the text. Yes. And I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, oh, I was so tempted to keep that one and talk about that today, but that one's on a cutting floor. We'll come back another day. Otherwise, I'll just say this. In God's sovereign plans, our prayers have impact pray. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out. This will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be shamed at all, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on whose account? Your account. 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in the faith and for your joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Glory be. Let's pray. Lord, it's an amazing reality that here is this man imprisoned, attacked, and joyful. And we're not talking about a wimpy, cover it over with a, a momentary, fluffy nut or joy. No, we're talking about a real deal joy that is true supernatural. A thinking joy, a theology joy, because it's based on the person and the purposes of you. Father, thank you for the chance to live. I would pray, I'll just say this week, that we would be more cognizant than ever to be a people, to be individuals that are living as laborers tools in your hand to produce fruit from you, by you, for you. And Lord, I would even pray as we would consider death. That for the person who knows Jesus Christ as their savior, it's not done. It's just transferred. It's with you. Lord, I would pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ or does not know that they know for sure what their relationship is with God, that they would ask. They would seek you out and what your word has to say and that they would come to understand that the cross was done for them. The empty tomb confirms the fact that the cross pays the price for sin and brings life. And that they would see there is nothing better in life than to be laboring for you. Oh God, we struggle to labor for ourselves. Help us to be joyful laborers for you wherever you put us, wherever you place us, whatever comes our way. Joy to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.